0: I invite you to open your Bibles up to Philippians chapter 1, and we're going to begin reading at the end of verse 18, you can see in your bulletin where we're going to start, if you're curious, it'll be the end of verse 18, and leading into verse 19 with yes and I will rejoice, that's Philippians 1, verse 18, we'll read down to 26, continuing our series in Philippians. so here is the most important thing we will do all day, which is read together the word of the Lord. Paul says this, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live because of my coming to you again. Will you pray with me? Father, as we look to your word, we ask that you would bring the life from it into our hearts, that you would speak by your spirit, that you would empower us for ministry, that you would convict us of sin, and that most of all, you would... Bring glory to your son, Jesus Christ. We ask that you'd help us now to remove distraction. Those things that wrongfully take our attention, those things that at the right time rightfully take our attention. But right now as we open up your word, it is not about any one of us. It is about Jesus. may this time reflect such a notion and empower us to walk with you, to obey, and to live the Christ life. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Can you get by in life on your own? It's an interesting question. I think literally we may say, yes, I suppose I could in many ways, but it's really in a self-assessment, if we can actually say no to that. It's also a freeing one. Part of the American mindset of independence reaches down to the individual and tells us that we are sufficient within ourselves for all things. We applaud those who have overcome trials on their own. We admire those who rely on no one else. Surely it's empowering to grow and to learn new things, not needing our hand held for every single task. But Paul shows an identifying, I'm sorry, an identity defining dependence on Christ and the means he has appointed for his deliverance. For those who say to live is Christ and to die is gain, a life of autonomy and true independence is completely contrary to the gospel. In this passage, Paul shows us his gratitude and the high importance of fellowship in the church for enduring to the end and to find a singular purpose in Christ alone. So where is Paul when he's writing this letter right now? You can say it louder. Prison, jail, he's in, he's in chains. He is not free in the sense of being able to roam wherever he wishes, but he is free in Christ. And as he's written this, as we've read this letter, we've seen an expression of Paul's joy even in the midst of prison. And now, as we look at this passage, we'll see his hope for future rejoicing. He lives as one who carries the good news of Christ, but his constant surrender to Christ in his life has resulted in him becoming a living picture of the gospel. It is as if the purpose of living in Christ has done away with everything that was Paul in his life. So that he can say, for me to live is Christ. So first point in your sermon outline on your bulletin there, if you want to see, I've put three um, thought points, I I guess, Um, looking at verses 18 through 19. I think that this ought to lead us to pray for and depend on each other and the Holy Spirit in a world that is contrary to the gospel. This is what Paul does. I will rejoice. Why? What is his reason for rejoicing? Verse 19, I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. And so it is with us. You know, there are two things that hold up Paul in this passage, and they are the prayers of the church and what? Verse 19. The Holy Spirit. Thank you. Yeah. The Holy Spirit and the prayers of the church. And there's not really a big difference with us. You know, our repentance from sin and our obedience to Christ is our responsibility, right? We cannot impart salvation onto each other. Yes? Correct? Yeah? Okay. As much as we may want to, right? Perhaps you have that coworker or that family member that you just wish you could just take some of this and just lump it on over to them, right? No, we have to respond to Christ on our own. But when we consider our resources, they go beyond reading the Bible and praying as imperative as those things are. We often live our Christian life on our own, neglecting the fact that we have brothers and sisters around us who would gladly pray for and bear our burdens with us and our need. We may say that we don't seek prayer from others because we think the person we ask is uninterested or too busy. But I believe almost everyone in the room right now would be willing to stop and pray with another person at any moment, right? Yeah? Well, okay. Wow, you guys synchronized that nod very well. It was like you waited two seconds and you said, and now, and then. (laughs) Great. (laughs) But I imagine that many of us, if not all of us, would gladly stop and pray with another person if we were asked. So why doesn't that happen too much? Paul shows us that it is not weak to ask for prayer. He's an apostle. If anybody, if if, if it were true that any person didn't need prayer from someone else to uphold them and to walk faithfully for Christ, it would have to be Paul, right? Or any of the other number of apostles. But instead, what he says here again in verse 19, he doesn't say, I know that through all my efforts, I know that through everything that I've done for Christ, I know that through my faithfulness, everything will turn out for my deliverance. No, he shows that he is dependent on the Holy Spirit and on the prayers of the church. Paul got great joy from the church, even though he was far from among them. He was in prison and they were walking around freely in Philippi. We talked the last two weeks about two things that we ought to take advantage of, one being our fellowship with one another as we live under this umbrella of freedom of religion that we talked about a couple weeks ago that we are freely able to gather right now to worship Christ on a Sunday morning, praise God for such an opportunity, but there are still six days in the week, right? So we ought to take advantage of ourselves of the fellowship that's available to us while we have the freedom to embrace that without concern or without fear. And secondly, we ought to take advantage of gospel proclamation opportunities that we have. Remember Paul said in the end of the passage last week, that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Paul's whole mission was to proclaim Christ. And so we live in such a great time that we're able to freely proclaim the gospel with people anywhere we are. Anywhere. You don't have to just talk about Jesus when you show up to this building or when you're at your own personal home as much as the culture would say contrary to that. The culture that we live in takes anything that is religious and says that's a private matter, keep it to yourself so that you don't offend anybody else. Well, there's a real big problem with our religion with that thought process, right? Because the very, very foundation of the Great Commission is that you know if we we're to obey the religion that we've been saved into, and I don't mean religion in a bad way, of course, here, but if we're to follow Christ, then we must, obviously, share him with others. You know, I've been thinking about this as I've come to Lima every weekend, and looking for opportunities to share Christ with people, and uh, I found it's a really easy open door for me when I just kind of say, I'm new in in town. Do you know where the advanced auto parts is or where can I go to get a good burger or whatever it might be? Now, obviously I could just pull out my phone and look up locations in Lima, right? And it would be very easy. And that's frankly what I would do in any other circumstance. But as I've been thinking about this passage, I've been thinking, what situation of life am I in right now that as Paul said in the passage last week, again, Verse 12, look at that again real quick with me, please. What has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Now, I may not be in prison like Paul is, but I am where I am, and I I have to live by faith that God is going to take where I am and use me for the advance of the gospel. does that mean that every weekend I come in to Lima, come into town, I go to, you know, I went to Firestone the other day to get my oil changed, and, you know, they they said it was going to take an hour and a half, and I was like, oh, boy. Oh, so, but then I realized, hey, wait, there are people here. This is a good thing that I'm here, right? So, you know, I start to talk to people that are coming in and out. And, you know, usually by the time I say, oh, I'm new in town, they go, oh, that's so interesting. And I say, yeah, I'm the pastor of Crosspoint Community Church. Oh, that's not as interesting. And then it seems that the moment that I drop that bomb, apparently, the the, time, the timer goes down to the point where they will try to escape the conversation, so, have I, in the last three weeks, had these great gospel encounters with people? Maybe you wouldn't call them great okay i've tried, and in my estimation, I feel I've failed. I feel that they were not those great opportunities that I were hoping for them to be while I was sitting with people who were also getting their oil changed or or wherever I might have been. So should I just give up so just lay down that whole philosophy of Christian ministry and say, well, people aren't really interested in talking about the gospel. Of course not, right? I mean, you should all be doing this right now, but I know you are in your hearts, right? (laughs) It feels like when the opportunity arises and I use my free conversation starter of being a pastor and being new to town, that, that people are ready to talk about anything except for what? Yeah. The thing that they need the most What do you have that you can use to talk to people about Jesus? Where are you, rather? Maybe it's not a a thing, it's not a material thing, but it's a situation of life that you are uniquely in that gives you an opportunity to share Christ with others. And if you don't quite see that, Maybe part of what we need here is to rely on the prayers of the saints and the help of the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to what is available to us as far as gospel proclamation. So, how about prayer for a second? Uh Uh-oh, turn it on. John Piper said, Prayer is a wartime walkie-talkie for spiritual warfare, not a domestic intercom to increase the comforts of the saints. I feel like this is just the best description of what prayer really is. Mostly because I'm acutely aware of when I do things wrong. And so when I even think about prayer and I kind of think, oh yeah, I get what prayer is. I'm talking to God about. Well, then looking at this, I'm like, huh, wartime walkie-talkie? Really? Wartime? Usually when I pray, I go, hi, Jesus. What a beautiful day. Boy, I'm just happy to blah, blah, you know, and, but what about the wartime? And, and it's not to say that that's a bad prayer, people. Okay, don't don't feel bad if you're thinking through your prayer time. You're like, oh, I don't have a prayer time walkie-talkie kind of thing going. Wartime walkie-talkie kind of relationship. But if we really think about the true need that we have in prayer, it is that we are here on mission to make Christ known, and that prayer is the means of communication to the one who, as walkie-talkies are meant for, constant connection, calling for resources, and for having assurance of backup. I imagine, I I haven't been in a war, an actual war kind of situation, I'm not a soldier or anything like that, but I imagine that as important as the weapon of the soldier is, a walkie-talkie must be far more important. Do you agree? Yeah? Well, why? If I don't have my weapon, how am I supposed to go to war? But if I have a walkie-talkie, what do I have? Yeah, connection to the greater body that is on my team, right? The greater army that I'm a part of. And so prayer becomes incredibly important as we think about the mission that we're on. And, you know, I can pray in the morning and I ought to pray, Lord, open up my eyes to the opportunities you put ahead of me. Let me be bold to speak about Christ. That is essential. But I'm starting to think as I've been, you know, living in this passage this past week that it's, Almost as essential that I ask for people to pray for me to have those opportunities. I've mentioned this verse multiple times already, but in Matthew 9:37 to 38, Jesus said to his disciples, "The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into His harvest." I think I've probably mentioned this at least last week and probably the week before. But this is another passage that's been weighing on my heart because I realized that I kind of think of these laborers that, that I'm asking God to send into the field. I kind of think of them as people that I don't know who go out, go off into far distant countries or or maybe even in the town that I live in or in a local area. But in truth, I feel like this verse compels me to Pray more for the people that I know, that the people that I know, that the, uh, my fellow believers in Christ would be those laborers that would be sent out into the harvest. And what is what is the harvest? What, how does Jesus describe it? What word? It's it's right there in case you don't know. So you just have to say the word out loud. That's all. What is it? Plentiful, plentiful. The harvest is plentiful. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? if the harvest is plentiful. Great! So does that mean that, boy, we live in such a contrary culture to the gospel and nobody's going to come to faith in Christ? And No. Is this verse suddenly null and void because we live in 2019? No. Absolutely not. Thinking again about prayer, going to Hebrews 4.16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of what? Grace. Just seeing if you're awake, that's all. Grace is the correct answer. What if I talk like all of you talk all the time? Throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews 4.16. So this is a really great verse, you guys. We can pray anytime we want to. All right, you yes. <laughs> yes. Okay. Let's try that again. With confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, so that you may receive what two things? Hey, alright! I like the uptick in that. Mercy and grace. When? In times of need. Thank you! Yes! Oh, you guys are great. Good job. So, what am I asking for when I ask for mercy? What I'm asking for from God when I ask for mercy is, God, don't give me what I deserve. Right? What am I asking for when I ask for grace? God, give me what I don't deserve. And I think the fact that we have this in our Bibles telling us to pray for this kind of thing means that we're going to get it when we pray, right? Prayer is also meant to amplify our joy. The one to whom we pray hears us, knows our need, delights to give good things. Joy is not circumstantial to receiving a pleasing answer but it is founded on the assurance that God hears our prayers and always responds perfectly, whether we understand the answer or not. Now, it's the prayer of the saints and the help of who? Holy Spirit, yes, that's right. Okay, so now I'm going to try the whisper mode okay, of preaching. All right, The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus Christ. I'm sure that through your prayers and through the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out to my deliverance. There is no prayer without the Holy Spirit. I know this because, boom, Romans 8.15. You did not receive the spirit of slavery. This is, he's speaking to Christians. If you've been born again, you haven't received the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of what? Adoption, such a beautiful word for us when we think about our salvation in Christ, that we've been adopted into God's family, we've been called and chosen. You've received the spirit of adoption as sons, I'm sorry, as sons, (laughs) wish I could read, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. I I read something recently about Abba, and I don't have it in my notes here, so please forgive me. But um, I, I read something so fascinating about this word, Abba, which I had heard before. You know, it's the name for, it's the name for daddy, and oh, that's very sweet. But it actually goes deeper than just like the idea of, calling, of a small child calling their father daddy. It actually comes from the sound that a newborn baby makes. Did you ever hear that before? It's incredible. Well, I mean, I'm sure you've heard the sound, but um, this, this concept of where this word came from. It comes from the beginning of life experience, crying out to a father. And this is the spirit in us. So so look at this. The reason I say there is no prayer without the Holy Spirit is because it says, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Can you cry, Abba, Father, apart from the spirit of God? No, you can't. No, we can't. Well, that, that might sound like a negative thing, and it is it is technically a negative statement, but the positive must be true then, that if we have the Holy Spirit, we can cry, Abba, Father. Does that mean that you set up a conference and a, and a meeting time with God in prayer, and it's very official and very professional? Is that what's what we're getting from a passage like this? No, we're getting the idea of conversing with our father and that we're his children and, and, and not children in the sense of like, yes, he created us, but I'm a full grown adult. No, we need to become like children, right? Is what Jesus said. Unless you have faith like a child, you can't enter the kingdom of God. So he says the help of the Holy Spirit, which is the same language that Jesus uses in John 14, 15, and 16 to describe who Jesus is. He's the helper, Right. And it, this word help that we see here is translated from a word that means supply, and it may be helpful for us to consider that the word that we think of as help, as we sometimes consider like, oh, I just need somebody to to." Give me what I need to complete the task I've already started, right? I need help. I'm doing this thing and it's going well. I just need an extra pair of hands to, you know, make it it final, make it complete. That's not what's going on here. God has given us his spirit to be the very means and effective effort in all that we put our effort into for the glory of Christ. So Francis Chan says this in his book, Forgotten God, which is a really cool book about the Holy Spirit. The church becomes irrelevant when it becomes purely a human creation we are not at all what we're made to be when everything in our lives and churches can be explained apart from the work and presence of the spirit of god in so many words what he's saying is is that if what we come up with as a church or i'd even say in our individual lives if what we come up with can be seen by the world and looked at and said yeah i could do that we become irrelevant There are a lot of things that we can accomplish on our own efforts, right? But there are impossible things that we can accomplish by the power of the Holy Spirit working through us, right? We need to embrace those impossible things. I mean, I'll just use an example from my own life. Preaching is impossible! It is absolutely impossible. I can write a long sermon and try to make it short, and try to make it effective, and try to make it faithful, and try and try and try and try and try. try. But the best sermon that I might hope to come up with on a Sunday morning is nothing apart from the Holy Spirit. So, we need him. Our next point, verses 20 through 21. Seek deliverance to the honor of Christ rather than preserving yourself. So, through the prayers of the saints and the help of the Holy Spirit, what is he looking for? Look at the passage again, please. I know that through your prayers and the help of the holy the spirit of Jesus Christ this will turn out for my deliverance the word that means salvation deliverance to do what what he wants to be delivered so that oh finally all the troubles can just be over and I can rest and you know I can make much of myself finally now right I can go take that me day that I've been wanting to take is that what he says no right sorry no Deliverance to honor Christ. Turn out for my deliverance. It's my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Honoring Christ, either in the time he's given to live or in the way he dies. This runs opposite to his hope that he will not be ashamed. You know, he says here, um, it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed. But, and we might assume, you know, in this context, he's talking about his own shame, that he says, I'm, I'm hoping that I, this doesn't result in my shame, but it hopes, it, it, I hope that it ends with my honor, with my glory, with my making much of myself. But no, he reverses that and goes upside down with it and says, not my shame, but Christ's honor, Christ's glory. You know, Romans one sixteen comes to mind, of course, at this point, that Paul writes in Romans 1 that he is not ashamed of the gospel because it is the what? The power of God for salvation. For who? Thank you. Everyone who believes, right? It's a good verse to memorize, just in case you don't have that one memorized yet, by the way. Look at verse 21, this famous passage. This is a call for us to turn upside down our own concepts of both life and death. Because Paul says, the reason that I can say all of this is because to me, to live is Christ. And to die is what? What? Gain? No, that wasn't because I couldn't hear you. You actually had a good, you know, Uh, Volume-wise response. It's just, let's, let's sit in the weirdness of this word for a second. To die is, what? Gain? Really? I mean, what happens when you die? You lose everything, right? You are separated from everything. Is that entirely true? No, of course not. Good job. Before knowing Christ... I am my life, what I desire, what matters to me, what I think about things. I also perceive death in light of me and my own understanding, the loss of me, the end point. I come closer against my wishes each day, hoping that all my plans may be accomplished before the end. In order for me to say to live as Christ and to die as gain, I need to die to myself. How often? Every Every day. Thank you. Every day. Daily, lay down my life for the cause of Christ. And I need to let the Spirit fill me to greater and greater degrees with the Christ life. I don't know if this verse reminds you of Galatians 2.20, but it does for me. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself me. Kind of feels like the definition of this phrase, to live is Christ. I've been crucified with Christ. If you're crucified, does that mean you're alive? No, it means you are dead. There's a spiritual, there's, there's a, a death of self that needs to happen in order for me to live the Christ life that Paul is talking about. And he says that dying to self is great gain. Just as Jesus says in Matthew 16 25, Whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Have you noticed how unusual some of the things in the Bible are? If you are trying to save your life, you're going to lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, then you will find it. Now, we know that this doesn't necessarily mean that we are meant to read this and say, okay, great, I'm going to go out and lose my life because that's what Jesus wants me to do. The truth is is that that would be far easier than what Jesus is actually asking us, right? Because what he's talking about here is no longer living for yourself, but living for him entirely. Can we do that on our own? Has Paul given us a reason to think that this is a solo mission? not at all well who's in prison paul and at this point sorry at this point he's by himself right he's writing all these letters on his own but does he have an idea in his head that he is truly alone no so how can death be gained first consider death as we think it most often death is loss we lose the breath in our lungs, blood flow ceases, brain activity is over. This wasn't supposed to sound like a morbid you know, description of what happens when we die, but follow with me, please. We lose our closeness to friends and family, the joy of seeing others grow and progress. We lose our homes, our treasures, our mementos, our favorite places, the hope of tomorrow. We lose whatever platforms we plan to stand on with our gained abilities and wonderful talents. What we do leave but what do we leave behind with a hearty good riddance though? Sin. The terrible thing that brings a vile taste to the mouths of God's people and yet that we find ourselves so often returning to. We will be done with sin. We'll be no more. I mean, if you take a fish out of the water, does he just go, "Huh, air. Wow, this is different." No, he wriggles around and freaks out and is like, what is going on? This is so strange and so new. And truly, someone who has been born again has a new understanding of the world, has a broader understanding of what is right and wrong and what sin really is. You know, Jesus said that he would send the Holy Spirit to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And when the Holy Spirit effectively applies the work of Christ to our hearts, we have a new concept of what sin really is. And it is detestable to us, though we still struggle with it. As we strive for this kind of mindset of saying, to live is Christ and to die is gain, I think the biggest thing in regards to sin that stands in our way is pride. It's pride that says I can surely find something other than Christ to live for. And so Paul doesn't directly talk about pride here, but when he says to live as Christ and to die as gain, it has to mean that he's done away entirely with any hope or conscious effort to, to live pridefully. It's not as though that temptation is completely gone. But he has embraced this concept of living within the means that God has given him His Holy Spirit, the Word of God, And the people of God. So what is true fellowship? I didn't put it up here, but we've um, defined this twice already with D.A. Carson's definition. That true fellowship is self-sacrificial conformity to a shared cause. Paul doesn't rely on his own effort or ability to keep him standing firm in Christ. Again, as we said before, if anybody could be a lone wolf agent for the gospel, you would think it would be Paul. And yet everything that he shows us right here is that he depends nothing on himself. He makes this glorious statement that is truly the call of any follower of Christ. So, as we think about pride for a moment here, I want to give you an illustration from a book that has been a movie. So you know what I'm thinking, right? Pride and prejudice. Yeah, what did you think I was going to say? Naturally, pride and prejudice today. A character, Miss Lucas, says this regarding one Mr. Dart. Has anybody read this book? Has anybody read it willingly? (laughs) Cool, we're in like this small club. (laughs) So Mr. Darby is the eligible bachelor of the story, and Miss Lucas says this about him. His pride does not offend me so much as pride often does, because there is an excuse for it. One cannot wonder that so very fine a young man, with family, fortune, everything in his favor, should think highly of himself. If I may so express it, he has a right to be proud. Isn't that interesting? We can't think of ourselves in these terms. Never in the Christian life are we meant to reach a place where we believe that we are finally self-sufficient and have everything that we need in and of ourselves, of who we are and what we've done and those kind of things. Pride is an ugly sin that creeps into our lives and makes us think that we can do or be whatever we think we want to do or be on our own. You guys wanted another Pride and Prejudice quote, right? Yeah? Okay, good. Good, good, good. Jane Austen writes this as well. Vanity and pride are different things, though the words are often used synonymously. A person may be proud without being vain. Pride relates more to our opinion of ourselves, vanity to what we would have others think of us. It's a pretty good definition, right? She must know what she's talking about. So pride causes us to see ourselves in light of our strength and ability. Vanity causes us to want others to see us in our strength and great ability. We need to battle against false perceptions either way. Whether we struggle more with pride or vanity or a little bit of both. We need to battle against those things and embrace the Christ life that for me to live is Christ. That everything in life is Christ. And that when I die, I'm not worried about losing all of this greatness about myself because there's nothing of me left. My life is Christ. I better make sure I got to my right spot. Okay, good. All right. So, Seeking the Spirit and seeking the prayer of the saints is an anti-pride and anti-vanity act. We need to request prayer in genuine need to honor Christ with our life on this earth. If we're to follow 121 at all, we need everything the Lord supplies us to live the Christ life. Last section, 22 through 26, which is the biggest one, but we're going to spend the least amount of time on it. So I apologize if that seems inordinate, but um, in verses 22 through 26 in your um, bulletin I wrote, in Christ's life, live for the service of others rather than for self. So we're coming back to this concept of what it means to live the Christ life again. So look at verse 22 with me once more, please. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. So to live is Christ. If I live in the flesh, fruitful labor. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So here we get what Paul perceives as the Christ life, which of course he would know what he's talking about. It is Christ empowered, Christ proclaiming, Christ exalting ministry to the saints and to the lost. Paul basically says either I die and get to be with Jesus, which there's nothing better than that. Or if I stay, it's better for you. Now, Paul, we cannot create this arrogant idea of who Paul is, unless you read Galatians, then maybe there's a little bit of room for it, but we'll talk about that later. Paul is nothing but humble here, okay? So he's not coming up and he's saying, it is far better for me if I stay with you, right? You really need me, okay? He's not, he's not one who's coming at, the, at these Philippians with this idea and saying, boy, you know, I'd really love to be with Jesus, but I'll stay with all you peasants, you know, and, and deal with you and, and do the good thing that the Lord has for me for you. But rather, he's saying, look, for me to live is Christ, and if this definition of living for Christ means Christ-centered, Christ-glorifying, glorifying, Christ-exalting ministry, then that can only be good for the people around him, right? If that's truly his mindset, then he has thrown away any hope of living for himself and has chosen to live for Christ. Look at what he says. He says he was hard-pressed, as though he's walking in a canyon with walls on either side of him and can't make up his mind, you know, which side he wants to land on. He he sees that there's a great need and there's great reason and he longs for that great ministry, but at the same time, he would love to depart and be with Jesus. It's good for us to live in that tension. You know, I think a lot of times we try to take sides on issues, and that's good. You know, we should take sides when it comes to right and wrong, but there's also things that are presented to us in Scripture as things that we should live in tension in, right? Um, Such as here, that while I am here, it is great to live here. This is really, I mean, God's created a beautiful planet for us to live on, and there's sin, and there's corruption, and there's ugliness in it, but there's also some good things that God is doing, and it's great to be a part of it. But it's far better to be with Christ. Paul's not saying he's the key to the growth of the church. It's better for the church that he remains, because if he does, it will mean their benefit. Because again, for him to live is Christ. Living on earth, fruitful ministry. Dying and going to Christ, far better. And look at what Paul hopes to accomplish in the church. He doesn't give a list of, I have a couple more books that I want to write, or, you know, I just came up with some really good sermon ideas that I'd love to present to you, or, have you seen my latest tent? He doesn't say anything about himself. I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress, that's it, for your progress, for your joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. His fellowship and closeness with the Philippians is so great that it will cause them to glory in Christ, even at his return to them. And this has been the train of thought he's brought to us thus far in Philippians. Joy in Christ Life being centered on gospel-centered fellowship, joy in gospel proclamation, and ultimately joy in the glory of Christ, that all these things that we do will amount to. Individually, with other believers, with non-believers, all for the purpose of Jesus. We should be reminded again of the Holy Spirit earlier in this passage in the prayers of the saints. Paul shows a Christianity in Philippians that has lived on dependence outside of himself. I depend on Christ to bring to completion what has begun in me. I depend on the Spirit to work in me. I depend on the preaching of the gospel to honor Christ, which is my life goal. I depend on the prayers of the saints to see that God enables me to stand firm on the confession of Christ. And what do I depend on myself for? That's an actual question I'm posing to you. In light of this passage, is there anything left for me to say, Oh, I need me because... There's nothing, right? Now, that's not to say that I'm useless, right? Because we are all part of the body that is mutually growing together and on mission together for his glory. So, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. I have nothing to depend on myself for. I have everything to depend on you guys, on the Holy Spirit, on his word, on God using all of these things to... Bring together the ultimate purpose that he has for the world to see Christ. I'm going to leave you with a couple of questions up here. Give you, again, like we did last week, a couple moments to pray through these things. I'll read these and then I'll stop talking and uh, we'll have a little bit of music in the background so that you can hopefully help you focus a little bit. Is my hope grounded in the Holy Spirit working through the prayers of his people or in myself? Do I rejoice that to live is Christ and to die is gain? or to live is self and death is loss? Am I expressing to live as Christ through how I serve his body, the church? I encourage you to pray with other people, by yourself, however you feel led in this moment. Just bow your heads. Ask these questions of your heart. Seek the Lord.